0: Welcome to Black Mountain Radio. I'm Erica Vital Lazar, a writer, curator, and a lover, not a fighter.
1: Make sure you get that right. Mm -hmm. Lover, not a fighter. And I'm Sara Ortiz, a curator, a literary dynamo, and I am both Team Solange and Sasha Pierce. Wow. Well, hello, Sasha. <laughs> and
0: welcome to Black Mountain Radio.
1: Erica, you may not know this about me, but I seldom, if ever, get lost.
0: Well, Some of us come to the planet with our own compass, so I'm not surprised that you're one of those.
1: (laughs) Well, this has just been my experience since I was young, whether I was a passenger in a seat like in Austin or if I was driving around in my hometown or even here in Vegas or if I'm walking around in New York or if I'm even emerging from a subway station. It's like I have this map in my brain. I always know where I am. I know where South is. I know where North is. And if I come into a roadblock, I don't actually even need the detour signs to get around. I can always reroute myself to my destination. I just automatically know where to go.
0: Well, it's a better GPS. And I've always known you to be guided by a strong sense of where you will and will not go.
1: That's my inner bruja. That's what that is.
0: Mm, Well, that intuition is everything. And it can also guide us into the detour that was meant to be the path. along.
1: Well, I found out that most brains are actually designed to do this. You know how in the most basic terms, the brain sends a signal to the nerve endings in your fingertips so that you know that what the thing that you're touching is either hot or cold. Well, that signal travels along neural pathways, these roads, if you will. And if some part of the brain is damaged or loses function, and the information can't travel along its normal or typical route, the brain automatically searches for new ways to fill in the missing information. It automatically reroutes the signals along different neural pathways so that the message can still reach its intended destination. Well,
0: I love thinking about and visioning the rerouting, the detours that even the neural pathways within our bodies, those very physical beings can take. Who's to say that those new pathways are wrong ways? You know, I often think about how in the rerouting we open up possibilities, new roads, new avenues, new spaces Mm -hmm. that go beyond road or avenue or pathway. What happens when the brain takes off, takes flight? Mm,
1: Yes, yes. I love that so much. Well, we got to thinking about the brain because its mysteries are one of the things that unifies the stories in this episode. And I'm actually feeling very aware of my use of the word normal before because the stories in this episode really put human neurodiversity on display.
0: Yes, these stories make me think about the accessible egoic self and the hidden shadow self, the daemon, the spirit that drives us to genius, and that can also haunt us. How far do we go to integrate these two halves?
1: Jumi Bello, who's a first-year PhD candidate and a BMI fellow as well, writes about what it's like to inhabit frequent breaks from reality caused by her mental illness in our first story.
0: Jumi's genius is evident in this piece, Sara. And clearly, Jumi can perceive beyond what the rest of us can see.
1: Here's Jumi.
2: Sometimes it's something you see. Most of the time, it's someone you hear. The first time I hear it, the voice, I'm almost 29. Iowa in October is lush, ripe with the scent of rotting summer love, of caramelizing pumpkins, but abruptly, so abruptly I can't tell when it knocked on the door, so fully realized, I can't remember a life without it. There is a voice. I'm smoking a hand-rolled spliff because I'm a grad student, because I have no money, and also because spliffs are the only things that can put me to bed at 1 a.m., the only place where I could put this restless, restless energy that tripped my fingers, my feet, my very mind. I'm standing on the porch, feeling the air do itself on my feet, listening to the click of insects in the tawn grass. With the long exhale, I inhale something besides air, something hiding between the atoms. There is a voice telling me about the email I had sent, the recipe I had to look up, the email I had sent, the phone call to Pippa. That book on Italo Calvino I needed to find. The email I sent. The email I sent. The email I had sent. The email I sent. The email I had sent. The email. The email. That was crackling into the chain of my thoughts until the email was the only thought I had. And it was tripping a breaker somewhere. 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 Somewhere, somewhere I lean into somewhere. Trying to find the break. Trying to break it even more. The last time I'm admitted to the psychiatric ward, my husband tells me a story I wish never reached my ears. Three nurses stand in front of me, one of them holding a needle. To the nurses, I'm snarling. A barking dog that is on the verge of biting their extended hand. But inside of every barking dog, there's fear. Fear makes time travelers of us all. Transporting us to worlds that no longer exist, but still take real estate in the cartography of our memory. While I am snarling at the nurses from the lip of my room in the emergency department, the security guard notices my fiancé walking into the ward, arms full of Indian takeout. He runs over to my fiancé and asks breathlessly, tell me something about her. He probably wanted to humanize me, think of me as someone other than a patient that he had to manage, turn me into a person. My fiancé, only just taking in the pandemonium behind the man, blinks for a moment. I don't understand, he says. Eyes still fixed on me. He tells me later that he couldn't recognize the woman in front of him. The one crouching at the knees, hissing and making the child next door start to cry. He wanted to run to me, shake my shoulders, say, What has come over you? But he understood. The security guard was really a gate, and the guard was really looking at him as if he held a glistening key. My fiancé told me his hands were sweating so bad that our flimsy dinner kept slipping through his fingers. He understands to get to me, he has to get through the security guard. Funny thing is, both men were thinking the other was the gate when really, the only person who could provide answers was me. You can turn away if you'd like. Once again, two men discussing a single woman's fate. Staring at each other, the security guard amends the statement. Tell me something about her, he says again. Tell me something about her so that I don't hurt her. My fiancé continues blinking at him, but finds the words to say, she is a writer, and I'm going to marry her in three days. When my fiancé told me this, I turned away from him. Turned away from the security guard turned away from the question, turned and turned and turned until the world continued turning, even if I couldn't anymore. Each kingdom of the sick is an invisible Earth. It spins in an orbit that runs on different physics from immovable objects and unstoppable forces. It has no king but me. I know. You're not a king. You're a single parent. You're a retail worker at some soul-killing strip outlet mall. Maybe you're someone's wife, like I happen to be. I've never been taught how to be a king. I've been taught how to fight for my life. But the thing is, the mind is as much a house as the body. And what house of blood and bone and light doesn't have someone there to open the door. You can, at the very least, decide what comes in. I hope you let me. I wouldn't blame you if you choose not to, but I hope you do anyway, because I want to tell you something that helps. It's not so much something that helps you how to rule, but more so how to be a king in the kingdom of the sick. I don't like telling my story often, as any person touched by madness doesn't like to. But if my story helps, so be it. The truth is, you may never be well again. But you also may be well again. And the strength of those peculiarities can break a person as much as they can mold them. In the face of such devastation, I say simply, patience. Have you ever looked up the word patience? It's a homophone for the word patience. I looked it up once on Google, only to have it gently nudge me towards a definition that put me on the same page as these words. Patience. The capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. To say it, to say patience is a virtue, can almost sound wrong. To be a patient is to be someone awaiting or receiving medical treatment. Patient is an adjective and a noun simultaneously. To be patient is to be able to endure hardship. Merriam-Webster tells me over tea, to bear pains or trials calmly or without complaint. I marvel at these definitions. Marvel at the duplicity of their naming. Wonder. Wonder. If the doctors of the world ask the Miriams of the world to create a word that forces human beings to create a relationship with suffering where to experience pain is considered virtuous and to refuse it, to turn away from it and everything it carries is to turn away from your own humanity. When someone demonstrates patience, perhaps you would like to thank them. Thanking people in advance for their patience seems to be a way of asking them to be patient. Thank them for calling you. Thank them for waiting. Make sure to thank them for waiting. Thank them for their patience. Place them on hold. Play elevator music that would be cavernous in the womb. Play it so loud that the walls of their world of blood and light sing with feeling. Tremble the membrane as it thins from fear. The ruby red of it, beating, but beating itself blue. Remember that I am even telling you this story patiently, even though I am a patient, even though I am anything but patient, even when I must be. Patience requires a velocity that only sanity can fuel. Mine is slowly eroding as I wait. I came to the hospital worried and frightened because of the furious highway I found my consciousness speeding down, images of burning houses and cars with my family inside of it bursting to life in front of eyes that didn't want this future at all. I called a group of friends intermittently over the course of three days whenever I was alone. After kissing my husband goodbye as he went to work, I'm fine, I'd promise him at the door. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Go to work. The sense of peace would last only an hour because that's how long it would take for the sleep to slide away. The sense of peace slowly slid itself into a small tartarus that I was hiding, but only for so long. I dialed wildly, telling some that I was just feeling a little down, just wanted a little chat, and telling the ones who really knew me that I wanted to murder my entire family. I think it's better if I laughed and stopped troubling you with these phone calls. I told my childhood friend, S with sincerity. This is too much for all of you. You've all got your own business to do. If you hang up, she warned me gently. I'm just going to call the police. You won't do that, I said. How do you know this? Because you know what the police do to black people. Or do I need to explain this to you as well? There was a very long... Very white silence. They would be coming to help you, she finally says, exasperation taking a backseat in her voice. June, you need to go to a fucking hospital. You're very sick. That's where they take you. They think they would be helping me, I tell her. What I don't tell her. You think you're helping me now, don't you? Let me tell you a story that has no end. Is that all right? Even if it isn't, remember that I am king in this land, this land that belongs to me. I'm only being polite the way you would be to me if I was entering your ward. Do you mind if I take the temperature? Do you mind listening even if you do mind? It's a performance for consent, but remember, it's just a performance. Even the act of watching requires a waiting, a holding of breath in the throat as we wait for the finale. Every time I walk into a hospital with loved ones, the moment the doctor talks to my family, my friends, tells them I am unwell, I fold my hands in expectation. A dance between doctor and loved ones. A song they sing to us of patience being a virtue, of sanity being a required virtue. And to be sane is to be good. The kingdom of the mentally ill watches in the darkness of the cinema. I fold my hands and let my madness grow florid as I witness two people discussing my fate, deciding how long I must stay, deciding how mad I really am. Let me tell you something else, another story, another performer who might dance better than even you. There's a woman named Suzanne Antonetta, a woman living with bipolar disorder, who asked the question that it hurt too much for me to dare to ask. She'd been hospitalized for psychotic delusions, and when she was let out of the wards, the first thing she asked her friends was, why didn't you come or call me? These friends weren't ready for such a question. Such a startling, sharp observation from someone who was supposed to be dulled to be whittled down to something they didn't recognize. Antonetta surprised them all. Antonetta pressed at their discomfort, asked them the question again. They shrugged, looked down at their shoes. One of them told her, I was waiting for you to come back to yourself, Antonetta, forever my heroine, responding with an answer for all of us. Who said I ever left? Someone, someone who loved me dearly, must have been calling around because suddenly, E and D, the friends in closest physical distance, these were the two friends who drove their car to my house to come find me. They found me in the bathroom, standing in the shower with only my underwear on, running water so hot the steam was lounging on my shoulders. Imagine my surprise when I find out upon arriving that the hospital has decided to cut their psychiatric department. What kind of private hospital cuts off their psychiatric department? I asked the doctor, trying as hard as I can to not appear rude. My fear is that all hospitals are all the same and once they understand what is wrong with me, they'll dig a hole in the ground and bury me inside there. I understand the rules of the hospital, but there are different rules for psychiatry. The minute you begin to not listen, is the minute they begin to assess that you don't have the capacity to listen. So, if you don't have this capacity, then you must not have the capacity for other things. You don't have the capacity to leave. You don't have the capacity to have visitors whenever you want, you don't have the capacity to ask questions. You don't have the capacity to tell the truth. You don't have the capacity to be alone. You don't have the capacity to understand what it means to want to die. You don't have the capacity to suffer, The one that you live over and over until it sows itself into the membrane of your molecules. I don't have the capacity to live. Please, please. I don't have the capacity to exist. Help me to exist. I understand if the story doesn't make sense to you. The story of psychosis makes sense to no one, least of all, the psychotic. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to any of us. When I say us, I don't mean you. I mean the people like me. The people you have sent away for saying the wrong thing, thinking the wrong things, feeling the wrong things, all these wrong things, taking up real estate in our minds until the only truth we know is the lie you keep insisting we spin. September again. This time when I hear it, the voice... I know what to do. This time, when I feel the thoughts twitch, continue, glitch, continue, then glitch again, I know it will tighten, coil until a tight, beautiful hurricane of spinning worry. The weight of the pears in my paper grocery bag digs into my palms as I jerk to a sudden stop underneath the shade of a nearby oak. I breathe in as darkness dappled by light, sunlight fracturing itself onto the sidewalk before me. A girl walks past me and looks behind, questioning, but I grit my teeth and smile, willing to do anything to pass as healthy. Anything to not come off is what I really am. A madwoman masquerading is not mad. A madwoman masquerading as simply woman. A simplicity shapes my mind moving forward, a shuddering engine undergoing metamorphosis, a great revealing of the body the machine was always meant to be. I create the steps in my mind that I must climb in order to get help. "'Come on, June. You can wait. Get home. It's sunny. I can feel the sweat bead on my neck, make a dripping necklace as I walk with purpose down the sidewalk to my apartment so I can call the after-hours number for the on-call psychiatrist at the local hospital. The nurse pressed the card into my hand. "'Someone will always be there,' she told me with an air of sincerity.' I palm the card in my hand, feel the edges of it soften to nubs as the sweat between my fingers becomes positively porous as my episode begins. The story of schizophrenia makes sense to no one, least of all the schizophrenic. Schizophrenia is a brain disease which terrifies. It is widely regarded by the public as an archetypal disorder that defines lunacy. It entails a profound loss of connection to reality. It is often accompanied with delusions which are fixed yet false beliefs such as you have killed thousands of people and hallucinations which are false sensory perceptions such as you have just seen a man with a knife. Or maybe it's closer to my experience. A man walks into the restaurant where you work. He asks for a glass of water. You hear him say without saying anything that he wants to take your life. Feeling my heart thump thick Thump, thump, thicker in my chest. I ask him if he'd like ice.
1: Jumi Bello is a Ph.D. candidate in nonfiction at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and the author of The Leaving, a novel that comes out this summer. She is currently working on a nonfiction book about mental illness, race, and police brutality. Jumi's work fights to show the marginalized that our stories matter.
0: How do we classify the level of obsession that drove Edison to develop the phonograph or Madame Curie to develop radioisotopes, an obsession that frankly nearly killed her? So an obsessive brain may drive an individual to the brink, but it can also push humanity into further innovation and discovery. The pursuit of an intangible idea eventually benefiting the tangible material world Ruth is a musician who developed an obsession with hexagons. They share that obsession with Darwin and the Greek philosopher Pappas of Alexandria. In the following segment, producer Aubrey Calloway takes us on a sonic trip through Ruth's mind and their obsession with the shape.
1: You may begin to notice hexagonal objects and forms everywhere after you hear this piece. You'll see them in stop signs, Celtic knots, honeycomb, the shape of the Chinese zodiac calendar.
0: There's even a 20,000-mile-wide hexagon made of jet streams around the vortex on the north pole of Saturn.
1: That sounds so cool. There's also even a hexagonal awareness month. It's in March, FYI. We must
0: celebrate. It seems that for many, hexagons are potent symbols of harmony and balance. Out of the three shapes that can be arranged to cover a flat surface, the square, the equilateral triangle, and the hexagon, the hexagon offers the most connection. I love that Mm, about this shape. Me (laughs) too. The least amount of separation between the individual shape.
1: Yeah, it's an integrating force.
0: Out of all of the divergent paths and patterns that our brains are prone to make in hexagons, Ruth finds a principle that coheres.
1: Here's Ruth.
3: I felt like if I could write some sort of manifesto or like understand what the deal with hexagons was, I could find some sort of solace in like my own existence. Freshman year was a very very like tumultuous time in my life. I was sort of depressed, not sort of depressed. I was really depressed. The way that my depression manifests is like a exploding existential questioning. What is going on? We're here. I was in my first semester, and I was taking introductory chemistry, introduction to engineering, basic music theory and calculus. And there was a certain point in the semester where the stars aligned and like the hexagons in each of those fields revealed themselves to me. I was doing my chemistry homework, but there was a certain part of the problem set that was dedicated to different chemical compounds. And dynamite, LSD, DNA, and plastic were all made out of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and, and nitrogen just in different configurations. This is where the conspiracy theory begins. Carbon number six on the periodic table arranges itself into a tetrahedron, which is made up of, I guess you could say, like six line segments, and connects with other carbon atoms to make hexagonal rings, and then. Those rings can connect to other rings, and you can make all kinds of like strange, wonderful materials. For example, in chemistry, like the benzene ring, is just the six carbon atoms, and it's entire. It's extremely poisonous, and it isn't very useful. But when you like chain together carbon atoms and benzene rings and you add in some nitrogen and some oxygen and get away from this basic hexagonal structure and breaking it apart, it's like this kaleidoscopic fragmentation that occurs. And that's what I was thinking about with music as well. In Western music theory, there are 12 pitch classes. typically in like a major or minor scale, like a subset of seven of those pitch classes will be used. But there's also different ways to construct scales from these 12 tones. My theory at the time was that both major and minor, the happy or sad kind of feeling could be derived from a more fundamental hexagonal whole tone scale with the like addition of an extra note and like shifting the whole tone scale in one or the other direction That's what I was thinking in my first semester <laughs> My friend Nico once told me when I was when I, when I was a freshman to follow my obsessions and just to sort of see where they take me. And I did that relentlessly. And I felt like if I could write some sort of manifesto or understand what the deal with hexagons was, I could find some sort of solace in my own existence. It it did sort of become like a religious fervor, I don't remember exactly like what I googled, but I was looking for like other people who were obsessed with hexagons. And then I found hexnet.org, which is run by this guy named Graham, who was like equally obsessed with with hexagons. And I like tracked him down through some like social pages on this website. When I joined, he was he was working on reading this book that's a, about how hexagonal geometry occurs in the brain. There are like, place cells and stuff that are arranged hexagonally inside the brain. We would talk and I would like give my perspective on how this relates back to, you know, the big, old grand hexagon in the sky. I don't think he's religious, but on his on his website he says something about the way that his brain is programmed. He has been and always will be fixated on hexagons what I remember very clearly, I think Graham said that the hexagon is the archetype of form. Everything sort of has a similar shape if you really get down to it. I was thinking about what my equivalent to God would be, like what I thought was true about the way that I viewed reality and really trying to define my own sense of being a a small part of a larger system. When I first got into hexagons, I was a freshman, and I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar disorder until after that summer. There's like this, this weird class of paradoxical objects. It's one thing that is both itself and not itself. This idea of like a pharmacon, which is like a thing that is both a poison and a cure. Bipolar disorder itself is also sort of a pharmacon of like extreme lows and like and extreme highs contained within a single person. And like a hexagon is both useless and also potentially like the most useful form that you could find. When a thing is hexagonal, it's inert and like stable. But also when a thing is hexagonal, it explodes or flourishes or morphs or changes or is unstable. So how could I reconcile this paradox of feeling like I'm nothing but also trying to understand myself as valuable and worthy. I was thinking about my own hexagonality, and if I could figure out why a hexagon could be both nothing and something, I could figure out why I could be nothing or feel like nothing and also be something. I've had a long struggle with expression, and sometimes like words don't feel like they can, they capture the the full story going down the rabbit hole of hexagonality allowed me to learn things about myself and like find peace with who i am and who i'm becoming that are essential for finding stability in a world full of misunderstanding
1: this segment was produced by contributor aubrey calloway an audio producer and writer whose work focuses on a variety of social and environmental issues, from disaster-induced displacement to affordable housing. Ruth is a musician and loves hexagons.
0: There was a time in my life when I was plagued by shark dreams. It's even hard for me to recount this Um, into my adult years. (laughs) And I'm talking the last um, four or five. I would wake barely able to move because I, in my dreaming, had found myself in the water with this massive creature, its jaws open, and it's coming. So even if I started the dream in some beautiful seaside, (laughs) picnic blanket on the sand ideal, there was always a moment in which either a tsunami-like wave would come and sharks were there, or a moment in which I would be pushed into the water. And end up in that nightmare realm.
1: No one can see my face right now, but I am terrified just hearing you describe this.
0: I have chills. (laughs) (laughs) So I learned to lucid dream as a strategy for evading the sharks in my dream. But still even hearing that word evokes a tingle in my body.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how certain words or language can cause these visceral responses and reactions.
0: You know, that is the power of language. And it is a power to know what words to say or not to say in order to signify, we go back to signs, levels of intimacy, mm, right? We know that you can share words with someone who would recognize Not only its meaning, but its vibration for you. Mm,
1: Yeah, right. And certain words of endearment, even in Latin America, don't necessarily translate here in, in this cultural context.
0: There's an intimacy in knowing what words to avoid with one another. The words we may not dare to say to each other. But either way, words stake a claim. They map out a territory. Writer Jackie DeForge has an extreme sensitivity to most sounds. In this essay, she explores her relationship to the one sound, a single word that gives me terror and gives her pleasure.
4: I have several facts about sharks saved to the Notes app on my phone. Scientists believe that sharks first appeared in the ocean around 455 million years ago. Most shark skin feels similar to sandpaper. Sharks are considered to be fish rather than mammals. There are over 500 species of shark. As I say these sentences, you probably hear the meaning of the words first and the sound of each syllable second. That is normal. That is how most people hear things. But that is not how I experience these sentences. My brain does not process certain sounds correctly. I seem to be hypersensitive to certain types of noise. One doctor described this hypersensitivity as misophonia, which refers to that rage you might feel when you can hear someone chewing really loudly, only I feel it with a whole range of sounds. Another doctor and one Reddit forum suggested that I might be on the autism spectrum, because one of the key indicators of autism is a hypersensitivity to one's sensory environment. Rooms can be too bright or too loud, certain types of touch can be too intense, But this all varies from person to person on the spectrum. The only thing everyone can agree on is that something is going wrong in my brain. It's been easy for me to understand and then write about the ways this has negatively affected my life. I've written about living in New York City for two years, the loudest place I've ever been, when my body literally broke out in hives as a reaction to an overstimulation caused by all of the noise. Mostly from the subway, and the music my apartment neighbors were constantly playing, which, even if I blocked out the sound of it with my own music, I could still feel the vibrations of it on the floor, or when I lay down in bed. There is a reason that loud music, usually metal music, has been used by the military as a torture device. The onslaught of sound, the fact that you have no control over the volume and can't do anything to turn off your ears, It has a devastating effect on your nervous system. I didn't always break out in hives when I could hear the music playing from someone's headphones near me on the train, but I could always feel my body begin to tense, the adrenaline increasing along with my breath, my whole body trying to brace me from the noise. I'm not the first person to experience this sensitivity, and each time I've written about it, people have reached out to me, relieved that someone else knows what this feels like. And we all generally agree that it feels the same. I get really hot, really fast, especially in my face and chest. Sometimes my arms will tingle as though they're about to fall asleep. My heart rate speeds up in the same way it does when I feel really angry about something, because actually that's how I would best describe this physical sensation, rage. Imagine how your body feels when you're so angry about something you can barely think straight. It's an intense urgency. Every muscle tenses, every part of your body ready for a fight. The word shark causes the opposite physical reaction in my body. When I read those sentences about sharks a moment ago, I wasn't hearing fun facts. I was hearing the word itself, shark. Shark is my favorite word in the English language, shark, shark, shark. When the sound of it travels through that pleasure center of my brain and down into my nervous system, shark, there is no urgency, shark. Sometimes there's a tingle or flutter in my chest, sort of like butterflies in your stomach, but higher, similar to what some people experience during ASMR, shark, which stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, shark. Sometimes there's an almost abstract warmth, like the moment before a blanket is draped over your body and you can feel the warmth of it about to touch you. If I had to assign a color to this feeling, it would be a deep blue. If I had to assign it a soundtrack, it would be a slow, quiet instrumental, definitely piano. When I tell people it brings me pleasure and they ask me to describe it, I think maybe they're expecting me to describe something similar to an orgasm. I think the word pleasure has become intertwined with sex more often than not. But it's not like an orgasm. There's no release necessarily. When someone puts a warm blanket on you, you feel satisfied, but you don't feel like you've reached a climax of any kind. The next question is always why. Why shark? Why this word? Why not similar words? Shirk? Shake? Shack? When I first chose to study French in school when I was 14, it was simply because I liked how it sounded. Other languages felt like rooms I was locked out of. I didn't yet have the understanding or the language for my auditory sensitivity, so I had no idea why certain languages sounded so grating to me while others did not. But French, with its soft, round words, sounded to me like it might have a window I could sneak through. Though I studied French in school and was already decent by the time I moved to Paris, there were so many moments where I overheard conversations on the train or street, in restaurants and shops, in the office where I worked, and I couldn't make out the meaning of any of the words. People were speaking too quickly or with too much slang for me to follow. It was the first time I lived in a place where the primary language was different from my own, and all these conversations were just sounds to me rather than words. All meaning was gone. During my first few months living in Paris, I began to ask native French speakers for their favorite French words, and I still have a list of some of those. Nuage, cloud, parapluie, umbrella, pantouf, slipper, soirée, evening. When I asked why someone chose one of these words, without fail, every person said they just liked the way the word sounds. They chose their favorite words for the same reason the 14-year-old version of me chose to study French. Everything else irrelevant, sound the only determining factor. I turned the question on myself. I decided on shark. I considered all the words that are similar to shark, but none of them did anything for me. Shirk. I think shirk sounds stupid. Shake. Shake makes me think of earthquakes. Shack. And shack is neutral. But I thought that maybe if I could figure out why the word shark, above all others, I could then determine what other words cause the same sensation of pleasure in me. And maybe I can make some sort of word playlist. Shirk. Shake. That I could recite privately in my head. Nuage. In times of great anxiety or boredom. Pantoufle Soiree. to find out why, why shark, I started with science. I learned that in general, the left hemisphere of your brain is the part that processes language, with mostly the frontal, parietal, and temporal lobes working together to interpret the language, assign meaning to it, and speak, hear, or read it. Recently, scientists have begun to think, though, that a certain category of words are processed differently, swear words. The amygdala is the part of your brain associated with processing emotions, and based on research involving Tourette's syndrome and aphasia, which is memory loss associated with dementia or brain injury, scientists think that maybe swear words are actually processed by or near the amygdala. The primary evidence for this is that when someone with dementia begins to lose their memory, They often have difficulty thinking of a certain word, but they rarely seem to forget swear words, and sometimes even begin to swear more regularly than they did before the disease. With Tourette's, many tics involve the involuntary and repeated use of swear words more than normal words. Scientists also suspect that it's possible we swear because it feels good and we're trying to release emotion, not necessarily because we're trying to convey any actual meaning with the words themselves. Whether we're hearing them or saying them, these words are processed in the part of the brain that deals with emotion, not language. When I first read this, I thought maybe it was possible that some non-swear words could slip through the cracks in certain people's brains. And maybe shark had slipped into my amygdala somehow, and my brain was processing it as a swear. I say the word shit more often in my daily life than I say the word shark much more often. So I think part of the pleasure of it is that I know that saying a swear word will release tension in the same way every time, guaranteed. All of this science was fascinating, but it still didn't necessarily answer my question about why I love this word, this specific word, shark, above all others. So after science, I turned to the next obvious choice for research, poetry. In Greek, euphony literally means good sound, while cacophony literally means bad sound, and linguists have determined that there are certain letter combinations that always fall into one of those two definitions. Honestly, much of what I read here was not shocking. Words with softer sounds and musical rhythms tend to fall into the euphony category. Serendipity, silhouette, diaphanous, pluviophile, Meanwhile, cacophonous words have sharper sounds and can be curt or abrupt. Chunk, scab, excretion, phlegm, and of course, moist, which everyone seems to hate across the board. Interesting that the meanings of the pretty words are pretty themselves, while the meanings of the ugly words are gross or disturbing in some way. Shark seems to fall somewhere in the middle. It starts with a pretty, soft sound ends with an abrupt hard sound. The meaning is usually neutral when you're talking about the animal, but it can also refer to a shady person, a lone shark, or a card shark. People usually want to know if the pleasure of the word can be increased or decreased depending on the delivery of it. The short answer is no. The long answer, it's not a pleasure that comes from a repetition of the word shark. In fact, I fear that by sharing this, people will try to say the word when they're around me, over and over again, thinking they're helping. But part of the pleasure is chanting upon the word every so often in conversation or a movie or elsewhere. It's not shark spoken at a certain volume or in a certain tone of voice. It's not the meaning of the word shark that I like. It's just the sound of the word itself spoken normally in any sentence, without any particular emphasis or showmanship. I figured that if I couldn't understand my love for the word based on the laws of science or poetry, then maybe I could understand it by looking at the actual thing the word represents. And while I do not have the desire to ever come face to face with a shark, I think that in the grand scheme of animals, they are actually pretty beautiful. This entire time, I've been trying to completely divorce the meaning of the word from the sound of it. Trying to pretend it was one of those French words I overheard in passing and didn't understand. But maybe I, as a writer who processes everything by writing about it, by finding meaning, maybe I am unable to do that. And maybe if it's impossible to consider the sound of the word separate from its meaning, then it can't hurt anything to take the meaning into consideration. Maybe because of the way my mind works, I can only understand something by circling it, shark-like. The part of a shark's body that I am most drawn to is the fin. It's often the only part of a shark that we can see above water. Movies have taught us to feel dread at the sight of a shark fin on the horizon. But really, when you think about it, the fin itself is just a body part. It's not ominous in any way. It's essential for a shark's movement through the water, and that's why I'm drawn to it. I'm interested in the way the fin propels the shark forward. And I'm interested in the word fin itself. When I read the word fin, F-I-N... I also think of the French word fin, spelled the same, but in French it means the end. The word for the part of a shark's body that propels it forward, fin, looks exactly the same as the word that refers to the part of the writing process that propels me forward. I need an end to write towards. I need a fin. Maybe I'm trying to do the impossible, trying to describe why I love something, trying to unlock an answer that will lead to more of that pleasurable feeling, to get it to last longer, to override all of the bad feelings, all of the hives on the subway, or the rage at everyone who doesn't know how to chew in a normal way. Part of my sensitivity involves me always trying to avoid the sounds that trigger me most, my body bracing itself for the anxiety, for physical pain, for the adrenaline to start. Shark is one of the first sounds that showed me that the sensitivity runs in the other direction, too. That the rest of my life won't just be hives and anxiety attacks and the thickest pair of headphones I can find, always worried if certain doors will be thick enough to close out all the noise of the world that I can't control. Shark feels like a window on those doors, a glimpse of the other side of what it is possible to feel. I follow the sound of it the same way I followed the sound of French words into that classroom. Not knowing exactly what they meant or why I loved them, only that the sound of them had left some sort of indelible mark on me, had become part of my body, almost like a fin propelling me forward.
1: Jackie Dave forge is a writer and artist based full-time in Los Angeles. Her work has been published or is forthcoming in the New York Times, Off Assignment, the Coachella Review, and more. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land.
0: Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Sara Ortiz is the architect and host,
1: and my dear friend Erica Vitalizart is this season's fantastic co-host. And don't you dare say the word shark to her. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Farah Blossom and Leila Muhammad are our fantastic producers. Additional production and sound design by Ariel Mejia.
0: This episode was edited by Nicole Kelly and Zonil. Maharaj. Our production assistants for this season are Sylvia Fox and Sonny Brown. Our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki, art by Niege Bourges. graphic design by Lily Allen, copy editing by Summer Tomad, and a special shout out to our engineer friend in the booth, Kevin Kral. Special thanks to our contributors in this episode. Jimmy Bello, Aubrey Calloway, Ruth, and Jackie DeForge.
1: Thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute. Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, and Haya Wang. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Our deep gratitude goes to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. Thank you all so much for listening.
0: And thank you, Sara, for allowing us to borrow your compass. (laughs) Thank you, Erica.